Today's sermon text is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. You know, the times that we're living in are, are I'd say, interesting and uh, probably frustrating and at the same time concerning. Now, there is this increase, or at least there appears to be, an increase in the antagonism towards those who have faith. And, and this increase in antagonism and, and um, the conflict tends to, at least most people fall into two categories, kind of a fight or flight mentality. Fight, we want to fight and, and make sure that our, our rights are attended to, or flight, we want to move to some place that we can avoid the issues that we have. And yet, how does the Christian respond to these kinds of times that are so conflicting and so difficult. That's what we've been looking through in this book to the Thessalonians. How do we respond to these? You know, many of you know that Martin Luther was once asked, if you knew that, to, that the next day that the world would fall to pieces, what would you do? And he's purported to have said, I'd plant an apple tree. Now, scholars will tell you that they don't actually know if Martin Luther said that. They can't find that in his writings. But they have found it in the, in the writings of the Confessing Church in Germany during the Nazi regime. Now, they may have drawn it from Martin Luther, but I think it's almost more appropriate to be in this Confessing Church who's under oppression and who's under great threat from the Nazi regime. And they saw that when times are falling to pieces, what will we do? Plant an apple tree. Why? Well, the idea is that we're so certain and we're so confident in the glory of the future that we're going to live into it, even though right now things may be very, very difficult for us. We're not going to fight. We're not going to take flight. We're going to engage. We're going to live as if God really is sovereign. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's just finished telling us all about the nature of the events of the end times, that the Son of Man will come with the same glory and power as God himself, he'll slay the man of lawlessness. He will bring retribution to the wicked. He will bring relief to the godly. He will establish a new earth and a new heavens. And he will be glorified in us and we will be glorified in him. Now, this is extremely encouraging. And yet Paul knows that we live in the days before that. There's something between that, and that's going to be, obviously, the rising up of a man of lawlessness. It's going to be this great rebellion. It's going to be a time of suffering and hardship. In chapter 1, it was more of a physical suffering. In chapter 2, it's more of an intellectual assault through false teaching. And Paul's trying to answer the question, so what do we do? How do we look at that day, even though we're going to have to go through this day? And so he tells us three things, and really next week will be a carryover. Uh, but what do we do? Well, he calls us to do three things. He calls us to pray. To pray that God's word would speed ahead and be honored. To be about 
concern for the nations, both in terms of prayer and evangelism. But he also calls us to trust, to trust in God. God is faithful. God is sovereign. Even in the midst of opposition, it may not appear to you, but God's doing all kinds of things in us and through us, even in difficult times. So he's faithful to trust that. And what I'm calling for really is not for you to believe, not to believe that he's sovereign, but to actively trust in his power to do good in the midst of bad. And then third, it's a call, it's a call to obey, it's a call to holiness. That in this world, which is just kind of disintegrating, falling to pieces, as Luther would say, that we're to be holy, we're to do what he commands us to do. There's a, it's a grace-fueled obedience. It's not a meritorious obedience, uh, but we still are called to obey. We're called to do what he commands. Jesus said in Matthew 28, and go and teach them to do all that I commanded you to do. So those are the three things. There's a call to prayer, a call to trust, and a call to be holy. Let's look at each one. A call to pray. Look with me at verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. So what Paul's doing is he's saying, fine, he's wrapping things up. Now, he's doing it better than a preacher. You know, preachers love to usually say, in conclusion, and then they rattle on for another 10 or 15 minutes. Now, Paul really, he's got a few more things to say, but he's, he's wrapping things up. And the way he's wrapping things up is by soliciting prayer from these people. Now, Ten times in these two letters, Paul prays for them, or at least tells us how he prays for them. And, and here he's asking for prayer. Notice what he's asking for. Well, first notice what he's not asking for. He's not asking for health. He's not asking for a better government. He's not asking for better connections. He's not asking for, you know, a, a better job or, or financial security or he's, he's not asking for any of these things. Not that those are unimportant. I don't mean to imply that. They're just not primary to Paul. What he's asking for is that the word of the Lord would speed ahead. Now, when I say the word of the Lord, I, I think by that he means the gospel. The word that Jesus Christ has been sent by God, a Messiah has been sent, a king, a son, one who is anointed to bring about a kingdom, a kingdom that will right all wrongs, a kingdom that will be rest upon his shoulders, a kingdom for which he will lay down his life. Uh, but the word of the Lord, the gospel, is also an invitation. It's an invitation to enter the kingdom. It's an invitation to come to Christ as your king. It's an invitation to walk by faith. You know, you see this very quickly in Mark chapter 1. The, the first thing Jesus began to do when he, when he began to preach, I should say in Mark 1, 14 and 15, he says, the kingdom of God has come. So that's, the, that's invasion language, people. That's social revolution language. The kingdom has come. Jesus is bringing a kingdom. Any kingdom that would hear someone say the kingdom has come, that's fighting language. He says the kingdom has come. He says repent and believe the good news. So there's a kingdom coming. The response is we need to repent. We need to confess our sins. Believe that Christ is the king sent by God. The unique Messiah. The unique Savior. To believe in him. This is the word that Paul's saying, pray with me. Paul is asking us to pray with him that this word would speed forth, speed ahead. So think of a race and the runner begins to sprint, gets way ahead of everybody. Or, or a, a you know, fire goes whipping across dry plains, whipped up by the wind. You know, it, it speeds ahead. In other words, the gospel goes into every nation and draws people from every 
trung, tongue tribe, every people group would be coming, God would be gathering the people together. That's what Paul's praying for. Can we join with him in having a missional zeal to pray that the word might speed ahead? It's like in Psalm 147, the psalmist writes, he sends out his command to the earth, his word runs swiftly. That's what Paul's asking us to pray. The Thessalonians, the word had run to them. They believed, and now he's saying, join with me as it needs to continue to run to the four corners of the world. But that's not the only thing he prays for. You notice he prays for the word to speed ahead, and he prays for the word to be honored. And that word honored means really kind of magnified or glorified. In other words, if you think of the runner in the race, and he goes running ahead, and he wins the race, and then he's crowned as the victor. He's the triumphant one. And so what Paul's praying is, let's pray that the word would speed ahead and be honored in the hearts of the people that hear it. That it would triumph over false religion and false philosophies. In other words, when the word speeds ahead and the gospel's preached, the people believe it. That they believe that Jesus Christ is the unique Messiah. And they turn in faith. That people from, they turn from false religion to true religion, false philosophies to true philosophy, to, to the truth and marvel over the gospel itself. So that's what Paul's praying for. You kind of see it in Acts, at the very beginning of the church. In Acts chapter 6, we read, The word of the Lord continued to increase or spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So here the word of God was preached, it began to spread, and then it was received. It was honored by those who heard it. They became disciples. It increased and multiplied. So when he asks us, pray that the word speeds ahead and pray that the word is honored. I, I think he means conversion, but I think he means more than that. I think he also means sanctification. That when you hear the word of God, that, that it would spread to you and it would be honored by you. That you would live in light of it. That your marriages would be changed because of it. Your parenting would be changed. The way you handle yourself in the marketplace would be changed. The concern you have for the neighbors, the willingness that you have to speak about the things of God will be changed. So the word speeding ahead and being honored is seen both in the conversion but also in sanctification of the hearts of the believer. Has the word sped to you? Has it been honored by you? you know, Paul doesn't have to explain to the Thessalonians what this means. He says, just as it happened to you. They knew. I mean, they were people that had turned from idols. Uh, they were convicted by the Spirit. They received the word with joy and much affliction. They had the evidence that the word was being honored by them. Is it being honored by us? I mean, being religious doesn't mean the word is being honored. The fact that you're moral, you're trying to live a, a, a good life, being religious doesn't mean it's being honored. Being honored you know, honoring the word as it's come to is to see Christ for who he is and all of his glory and beauty and turning by faith to him, trusting the salvation of your soul to him alone, not to him and the things that you've changed or the things that you've begun to do, but resting squarely and solely on him. So Paul's praying that the word would speed ahead. And I pray for you if, if you're here and you haven't seen the word honored in your life. That if you're a Christian, you would repent. That is the grace of God given to us to repent 
and ask for grace. Uh, but if you look at your life and you haven't seen evidence, then to honor the word is to believe all that it says about Christ and to follow. So Paul, he gives us three things to pray for, though. He, he prays for us, that he asks us to pray that the word would speed ahead. He asks us to pray that the word would speed ahead and be honored. But he also asks us to pray that he be delivered or that the word would be unhindered. Look with me in verse 2. In verse 2 he says, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Now, who are these wicked and evil men? We don't know. We don't know. It, it, the grammar in the Greek would indicate it was a specific time or place. Maybe when he, in Acts 18, when he was suffering under the, uh, the oppression of the Jewish people in Corinth. Maybe it was that. Uh, maybe it was outside the church. Maybe it was inside the church. Maybe it was false teachers. All we know about them is not all have faith, or literally not all have the faith. You know, not all believe. But, but it, it doesn't matter for Paul. Uh, Paul's asking to be delivered. Now, Paul's not asking, you know, can I have safe travels on my journeys? Uh, I think Paul's asking to be delivered so that he can continue with the word. He's asking to have the freedom to be unhindered by these wicked men, and these hindrances they're putting up, so that the word, Paul knows that the word goes out with suffering. He said that no one enters the kingdom of God except through tribulation. So Paul knows suffering will come. In fact, he says in 2 Tim 2.10, he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Now, it's Paul saying, I'm willing to endure anything to make sure the gospel preaches, that the elect hear and believe. So we, we see Paul here, he's asking for three things. Would you join with me praying that the word would speed ahead, uh, that the word would speed ahead and be honored and go unhindered and overcome the hindrances? So can you join with me in that? I mean, is that a prayer that you can see yourself praying? That you can pray, God, would you cause the word to speed ahead? Maybe even on Saturday afternoon as you're preparing for Sunday morning. God, cause the word to speed ahead and be honored by all the members of CCC. May the word of God speed ahead and be honored in all the nations. This is why we pray for a people group every week. We pray for another church every week. We want to model what we're asking you to do, that we want you to join with us to pray. That the, do you realize that the mission of the church is advanced by the prayers of the people? That God has so wrapped up the plans that he has with the prayers of the people. We want it to speed ahead to those who don't know him. We want it to speed ahead to not just globally, but locally. You all have friends and family who don't know Christ for who he is. And can we pray that the word would speed ahead and be honored by them? Now, if this isn't a concern for you, if you've never really thought about it, and it's not that big a deal, then I would ask you, has the word happened to you as it did to the Thessalonians? If you have no concern, then ask God for grace to have a heart that is broken over those who reject or are ambivalent or even antagonistic to Jesus Christ, his only son. I mean, let's pray to have a heart that we're concerned for these people. I, I know for some of you, you're probably thinking, I just don't even think it. And I, I get that. Well, let's write it down so we can begin thinking it. We, we want to be concerned for the nations. That's Paul's, Paul's saying, join with me in the endeavor to, to just declare Christ to the nations. And that begins maybe with your neighbor.
But I, I want to say something else about prayer. It just prayer doesn't just advance the missions, uh, but prayer also glorifies God. You know, John Piper in his book "Let the Nations Be Glad," he talks about God harnessing prayer to the advancement of the mission of his own mission, that he be glorified. In other words, when we pray and we're asking God, God, cause your word to speed ahead, then it's reminding us that God does the savings. God saves, not us. And God is glorified by us, independence, appealing to him to have his word speed ahead. But it doesn't just glorify God, it does gladden us. I mean, we are engaged in something significant, something eternally significant. You think about the greatest entertainers, or the greatest politicians, or the greatest athletes, or the greatest financiers, or the greatest intellectuals. One second after they're dead, their work means nothing to them. And it won't account for anything for them. But we're engaging with God on the redemption of the world, and he has called us to pray with him in the advancement of his name. This is an eternal work. It's an eternal work. But you may be thinking, well, hold it, Tom. We just talked last week about election. How does prayer work with election? If God has chosen before the foundations of the world uh, these souls that he's going to save, then why do we even need to pray? Well, I want you to see that in Paul's mind, he hasn't forgotten what he wrote four verses ago. He sees prayer and evangelism as being friends with election. In fact, prayer and evangelism are effective because of election. If God had not elected, our preaching would be in vain. It would be just going off on deaf ears. Our evangelism would be ineffective. But God for his own purposes, has chosen to use our prayers to bring his election to fruition. You kind of see this evangelism and election together, for example, right together in Matthew 11, 27 and 28. He says these words, this is Jesus speaking, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So there you have, in the triune God, the Father's going to be revealed by the Son to whom the Son chooses to reveal. So it's not really dependent upon us, it's dependent upon God. But then look what he says in the very next verse. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So here you have a, a picture of the sovereign hand of God in salvation, and then you have this general call that Jesus makes, to come to him. Jesus makes no explanation for this. Paul doesn't either. We accept them both as true. So we pray even though he has elected. Our prayers bring his election to fruition. But saying that doesn't mean that we don't share the gospel. I mean, prayer doesn't mean you only have to pray. We do have to share. Uh, God has chosen us to be his mouthpiece to declare this message. That's what Paul's driving at. He wants him to pray. He wants him to speak about the faith too. Now, some of you may be intimidated by that. And you can't think of engaging in a conversation with somebody about the gospel. Well, Paul's kind of a good example for us then. Then ask somebody to help pray for you. That you would have boldness to do it. When was the last time you asked anyone, say, I want to share the gospel with this person, but I don't know how or I'm scared to do it. Because that's what Paul's, the great apostle Paul, 
the one who everybody would want at their side when they're going to their neighbor to speak to them about the gospel. Get Paul along and all things are going to go. Paul doesn't rely on his, on his wisdom. He doesn't rely on his past successes. He doesn't rely on his great intellectual ability. He solicits prayers from people. He does here in this book that we're studying. He does in Ephesians, he says, he, he says and for me as well. Pray that I might preach it boldly or, or without fear. So Paul was obviously facing some degree of maybe intimidation, and he's seeking prayer from the church at Ephesus. He does the same thing with Colossians chapter 4. He says, pray that I can declare the mystery of the gospel. He said, pray that a door would open, and that I could declare it clearly. Paul prays for clarity of speech. So ask people. Ask a friend. Ask a spouse. Would you pray for me? that I begin to be bolder in prayer and or in evangelism. So we see Paul saying, in these difficult days, we are the ones, we're not to take flight, and we're surely not to take fight. No, we're to pray. We're to pray and to speak about the things of God. But, but he goes on from this. He also says, he calls us to trust. Look with me at verse 3. In verse 3, he says, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. I love this. You know, here, he's saying, but the Lord. Now, that's adversative. It, it, it's in contrast to what comes before it. Paul has just finished saying, you know, I'm facing the opposition of wicked and evil men. And that might cause these Thessalonians to kind of shake a little. He says, no, 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 but the Lord's faithful. These men may be faithless. They may have no faith at all. But God's faithful. The Lord is faithful to us. He's faithful to his word, that it will speed ahead and be honored. And he's faithful to his people. But first, he's faithful to his word. And, and in Greek, that, that faithfulness is emphasized. But the Lord is faithful. It's not that he will be one day. He is now. His faithfulness will be to make sure that his word goes forth. Now, we see this in the early pages of the church, in Acts, I read to you from Acts 6, but in Acts 12, it says that the word continued to increase. In Acts 19, it says that the word continued to increase and prevail. And we see this in the early centuries, the first few centuries of the first and second and third century after the resurrection of Christ, the word prevailed. Hey, if you read Larry Hurtado's New Testament scholarly wrote a book called The Destroyer of the Gods, and he talks about the distinctive nature of the Christian faith destroyed the Roman and the Greek gods. Or Luke Ferry, a French philosopher, he wrote a brief history of thought. He speaks, of, and he's not a Christian, but he speaks about how Christianity, with its transcendent view of God, with its distinctiveness of people, and its high moral ethic, its longing, it gobbled up Greek philosophy and the gods, and replaced it, supplanted it. It created a new, which you see in Western civilization. So you see the word, God is faithful to his word. You see it even today. How does the church explode in China? An active corporate attempt to squash the Christian faith produces churches. You see it in Iran. Some missiologists think that the church is growing faster in Iran than it was in China. Why? The Lord is faithful. 
he's faithful to us. How about your own life? Do you ever look at yourself and just say, why am I a believer? Why do I believe these things? My family doesn't. Others in, uh, others in my background don't, but why do I? The Lord's faithful. I, I want you to grab that because all of us have friends and we have family members that you think they're too obstinate, they're too argumentative, they're too lost to be found. Can I encourage you? The Lord is faithful. Re-engage in prayer. Ask God to have mercy on them, to open their eyes to his beauty and power. But the Lord's faithful, not just to his word, he's faithful to his people. Notice he says, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and he will guard you from the evil one. He's going to establish you. Now we've already seen this twice, just last week, and even in chapter 1, and at the end of chapter 2. He's going to make our feet firm. To establish us means that the things that we do, the ministry that we engage in, the prayers that we utter, the work that we, we do, God will, it will never be lost. Listen, all the accolades and the accomplishments of the world, they are like the flower of the field. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. But for the Christian to seek and to serve God by loving and sacrificing for people, that will be established. It'll never be forgotten. Forever it'll be known. Not even a cup of cold water, Jesus says. Not even a cup of cold water. It'll be established. So, so engage in these things. He's faithful. He won't forget. He's faithful. He will establish it. All those resolves that you have, he will fulfill them. Do you believe that? Because he's saying the Lord is faithful. And not just, to, not just to establish us, and even in a chaotic world, he can establish his people in a chaotic world. But not just that, he'll protect us. Now, when I say protect us, I, I'm not saying he's going to just pluck us out of every problem that we have. Protecting us, I mean by that, I think he perseveres us through it. I, I think Paul almost, he almost drew this out of Jesus' high priestly prayer. In John 17, listen to the way Jesus preached, and you can hear the connections. Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The same kind of prayer. So Jesus, we're not going to be taken out of the world, but he will guard us through it. Now you kind of see this in more of a, a microcosm when Jesus speaks to Simon in Luke 22. You know, Simon's making these pronouncements to Jesus, and, and Jesus looks at me and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And he says, and when you have returned, because Peter would trip, strengthen your brothers. In other words, you will trip, but your faith will not fail. He will guard us in faith. He will establish us, and he will guard us. I don't care how chaotic the world may become. He will, because he's faithful, he will establish our work, and he will guard us. And Paul's saying, do you believe this? This is kind of, you know, we don't have altar calls, but I'm constantly calling you to believe. You realize that. I'm calling you, do you believe this? Will you put the safety of your soul on that truth? You know, the many things that we're trusting in, 
you, know, you see from the election being over. Some people that I've talked to on both sides of the aisle, uh, some on the other, on the Republican side, they feel as if, wow, we're, we're in trouble now. A as if a Republican president would somehow make the church more secure. And I'm thinking, really? God is sovereign over all leaders. Or, or we're putting all of our hope in some medical advancement so that we can, we can overcome COVID. As if we overcome it, now it's just going to be clear sailing. We'll have no other medical issue. Or, or, or financial insecurity. The markets, you know, now that there's a change in administration, the markets are going to become bouncy again. As if our financial well-being is rooted in that. You know, we're trusting in all kinds of things. I'm calling you to trust that the Lord is faithful. It doesn't matter what happens out there. What matters is who is God. He's faithful to establish and protect us. We don't need to fear. You know, Charles Spurgeon, preaching on this text, encouraged the same. He said, shall we worry ourselves with unreasonable and wicked men? He said, no. Let us turn to the Lord, for he is faithful. No promise from his word will ever be broken. He is neither unreasonable in his demands upon us, nor unfaithful to our claims upon him. We have a faithful God. Be this our joy. He will establish us so that wicked men shall not cause our downfall, and he will keep us so that none of the evils which now assail us shall really do us damage. The Lord will fulfill the purpose of his grace to us as servants, and we need not allow a shadow of fear to fall upon our spirits. So we don't have to fear the culture in which we live. We don't have to fear the threats to us. God is faithful. He will establish us and protect. Think about that Psalm 23 again. Remember how I, I touched on it last week? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We all are in the valley together. I will fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But do you know what he says next? He says, you prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. Surrounded by enemies, he prepares a table. He'll anoint our head with oil. Our cup will overflow. Surely goodness and love will follow us all the days of our lives. And we will dwell in the house of God forever. In the presence of our enemies, he prepares a table for us. He calls us to, he's faithful. He's faithful to us. So how do we live in this time? How do we live in this intervening time of waiting for these events of the last day to come? Well, it's a call to pray, and it's a call to trust. So I, I want you to, to get rid of your household idols or whatever else you've been trusting in, and, and root your trust in God. He's faithful. Threats to your body and your job and your health and all those things. Just keep bringing him to God. I love in Psalm 56, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Ask yourself the question, what can flesh do to us? He remains faithful. So as we wait for these days, as we go through chaotic times, we will be the church. And we will pray, and we will speak of the glory of God, and we will trust in the faithfulness of God. But then last, last, we want to live holy lives. We want to, and here's what he does. Look with me in verses 4 and 5. Interesting verses. It includes another benediction, just yet another one. In 4 and 5 he says, And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. 
May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. I was trying to get these verses together. You know, how do they relate to one another? Paul's saying he has a confidence. His confidence is in the Lord, but his confidence is that these Thessalonians will actually do what Paul's commanding them to do. I think he tells us not just to be holy, but he tells us how to be holy. Let me explain what I mean. He clearly tells us to be holy, to do what he commands us to do. But notice that Paul's confidence is in the Lord. It's not in the Thessalonians. Not only is God faithful, and he thinks upon that, he thinks God is faithful, so he's going he's gonna to establish and he's going to guard us. He's going to help us. But, but, but Paul's trust in divine sovereignty, helping us be holy, doesn't deny human responsibility. We need to do what he commands us to do. Now, when he talks about what he commands us to do, I think he's talking about that apostolic teaching, the traditions from last week. Not just the words of our Lord, but, but also the words of the apostles in the New Testament. That we are called to do these things. We are called to pursue holiness. We are called to seek to repent when we fail. Now, it's, it's not that this is meritorious, you know, doing all that he commanded to do. It's not going to put you in good stead with God because you're doing better with it. The reason I say that is because what does Paul do? After he tells us to do what he commands us, what he commands us to do, he turns right to prayer. And, and he, says, he says, may the Lord, may the Lord Jesus direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Think about this. What he's doing is this. He knows that we cannot follow these commands. Paul's not trusting in their resolve or their moral ability. Paul goes right to God to say, God, help them obey. And, and so he begins to pray. But notice what he prays. Direct their hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. In other words, I think what he's saying is, God, the more they understand your amazing love for them, the less they'll want to walk in disobedience to you. You know this is true in your own life. Pick someone that you really, really love, and you know they really love you. It, you feel bad to cross them. You, you don't want to run contrary to them. And Paul's praying, God, direct their hearts. Remove all hindrances so their hearts run deep into this eternal love that you have for us as displayed in Christ. And if you begin to grow in a deepening understanding of how incredible God loves you, then Walking in ways that are contrary to his will hurt you and you are led to repentance and you don't want to walk in that way. doesn't mean that you walk perfectly, but you keep short accounts with God because you know he loves you and you know that you love him. But not just the love of God, the steadfastness of Christ. He's saying to help you walk in the way that I've commanded you, look at Christ's endurance before the cross. Look at what Christ endured for us. He bore every one of our sins. And he did it in a steadfast, a patient, enduring way. You know, it says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame? Right before that, he says, Let us run the race with endurance. In other words, if you get a handle on what Christ endured to bear our sins, you won't want to sin. You won't want to, to treat that in any way casually. 
And so I think Paul's not just telling us to be holy, I think he's helping us be holy. He's asking God. You know, so I was trying to wrestle these two verses, and, and so I was reading through Valley of Vision just as part of my devotional time on Sunday morning or Saturday morning. The Valley of Vision, if you haven't got it, I've encouraged you to read it a thousand times, I'm sure. Uh, but it's a compilation of Puritan prayers. And, and, and I just happened to read this on, I just happened, right? Uh, God's kindness to me in, in, the, um, in the one titled Conflict. He says, uh, teach me to look to Jesus on the cross and so to know sin's loathsomeness in thy sight. He said, blessed Lord Jesus, at the cross may I be taught the awful miseries from which I'm saved. May I ponder what the word lost implies. May I, may I see the fires of eternal destruction. Then may I cling more closely to thy broken self, adhere to thee with firmer faith, be devoted to thee with total being, detest sin as strongly as thy love to me is strong, and may holiness be the atmosphere in which I live. So looking at the cross leads us into holiness. I think that's what he's driving at here. If you, if you deepen, if you know the love of God is better, it's more superior than all the pleasures of this world, you're going to want to follow him. And if you understand what he bore and how he bore our sins, we're going to want to follow him and do what he commands. So he's calling us to be holy. I, I want to strive with us because in the evangelical church, we have made so much of grace trying to overcome the legalism of past centuries that we've almost made little of holiness. We've made little of striving for holiness. We've made little of actually doing what God says. And, and, and the implication is that if you love God, you do what he says. And so I would call you folks, if we are walking kind of just casually with these commands because we got the grace card to pull out, we're not understanding grace. That's cheap grace. It's cheap grace. We want to strive to be a people who are holy and set apart. This is what distinguished the early church from their pagan neighbors, that we are holy people. We are looking like God as we live. Now, I know that we trip and fall. I've been in the faith a long time. And I've seen greater desires of holiness in my own life, but I also see where I still slip and fall and choose the, the immediate pleasure of what I'm wanting versus the long-term sadness over the sin. I, I make that bad exchange often. And that's why I think this text is so helpful, because we can run to him. We can begin to pray. If you're struggling with certain sins that just seem to plague you, whether it's pornography or anger or bitterness or envy, if you keep choosing the worst rather than the good, then, then ask, say, Lord, direct my heart into the love of God. May I bathe myself in his divine love. And, and, and direct my heart into the steadfastness of Christ. Give me clarity, a vision of the cross and all that he's done for me. That I would find the commands to be freeing, to be sweeter than honey from the honeycomb to be giving wise to the foolish. Read the second half of, of Psalm 19, that the word would make the ignorant wise, that we would pursue the commands. But notice he says, may the Lord direct your hearts. You know, within evangelicalism, I hear often, well, I want to follow my heart. I want to follow my conscience, that my conscience is guiding me and, and my heart is impressing upon me in these directions. 
your conscience and your heart is not infallible. Oftentimes when I hear this kind of language, my heart's leading me to do this, sometimes it's almost in contradiction to clear commands. I'm like, no, he's not saying follow your heart. He's, no, direct our heart. Our heart needs direction. We don't take direction from our heart. We're directing our heart into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. You know, there's almost a, a kind of an evangelical mystic kind of, kind of I don't know, one, one article I read about the rise of Christian prophets in these last 10, 15 years, a lot, this one author was arguing that the rise of Christian prophets, and I would add Christian mystics, has to do with a lack of trust in our institutions. And so we feel like our institutions are beginning to rattle, and so now we have to kind of create our own segue to God. We become our own communicator with God. And yet God has given us his word, and he's given us the leadership of the church. He's given us the counsel of brothers and sisters. All those things help guide us into the right path. So, so let's pray. If you're struggling with sin, uh, then ask the Lord to direct your heart into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So, so here we have, we are living in unique times. As I said, they're interesting, uh, they're quite unique, and they're, and they're kind of concerning. And so how do we want to behave? You know, we have this day ahead that Paul's made clear to us, and yet we live in this day right now. So how do we live? Well, I think he's called us. Let's be people of prayer. Prayer for the word to speed ahead and be honored. Not just among those who don't know him, but among our own lives. And then it's a call. It's a call both to pray and it's a call to trust. That when you read the paper, you know, I kind of look at Sunday morning as a recalibration for you. You know, you read the news all week, you get your pans rattled, and then you come here and we get recalibrated. That's right, God is faithful. I would want you to obviously read the Bible all week long and recalibrate yourself uh, through the word. But, but, but the idea is that we want to trust, active trust. So when you move in fear towards something, just step, take a step back and remind yourself, he's faithful. No, I don't have to fear even physical threat. He will establish me and he will guard me. And then last, it's a call, it's a call to be holy. It's called a look at our lives. And what are those things that have been just dogging us? Can we confess them to a friend? Can we confess them to our spouse? Uh, can, we, can we ask a friend, pray for me that I might, my heart might be directed into the love of God. My heart might be directed into the steadfastness of Christ. So not only am I walking towards holiness, but, but I'm learning how to do it. I care deeply for us that these that we leverage these days. We leverage these days. That we we do shine bright like stars in the sky. Let's pray toward that end and I'll close this in just a minute.